Uh, there is one thing I wanted to address before we move on, and that is the officer nomination process. There's always some confusion that comes along with it and that sort of thing. The, uh, the nomination forms are out on the table in the narthex, and there's a box there for those. And on the form, you've got all the people that are all the men. They have, they have to be male members of the church that are in good standing as members of the church. Uh, so there's a number of guys on here. Some of them are already serving as officer in one capacity. For instance, Walter Redmond is a deacon. He's been a deacon for many years. Doesn't mean he can't become an elder, so he's, he can be nominated uh, to that. Uh, but don't let this confuse you. Let me tell you something. If you just want to write down names on a, on a napkin and put it in the box, that's fine, okay? <laughs> The only thing we're doing is trying to make it easy for you by providing this form. Uh, and you can put, you can, you can use one form to nominate 15 people to different offices or whatever. That's not important. Or you can use one form per, per person. The only thing is this, is if you put it in the box, I promise you this, that the name will be considered a nomination. Okay? Uh, the only restriction is really that, uh, you know, you have to have at least two nominations to be considered for an office simply because we don't want a wife nominating her husband and nobody else, okay? Uh, so again, don't complicate it. It's very, very simple. All you got to do is figure out who you want to nominate, if you want to nominate somebody. And, and, and again, you have to uh, indicate on here that you have actually read their qualifications for these offices before you've, uh, you've, you've submitted this nomination form, which says this, that you see those particular gifts and talents and character aspects of the person that you are nominating. Okay. Keeping in mind that we're not looking for perfect people, right? Because there are no perfect people. Uh, and I just want to remind us all of this, is that you determine the officers here. I don't. The session does not. You do it. And the only time that we ever disqualify someone is if we know of circumstances that makes them very clearly disqualified, even though you might not be aware of those. So I just want to caution with, with this idea, and that is sometimes we are privy to information that you aren't. Okay? And again, this is only the beginning of the process. Once people are nominated, then they have to go through extensive training with yours truly which will take months to get through because we're doing theological training and we're doing bible training etc 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 and they will have to pass an examination at the end of it and they will have to have the final approval of the elders and then we will have a congregational meeting and all of those people that have been nominated that are still standing we will vote on those Okay, so that we're just at the very beginning of this process and it won't end probably until maybe November or December or something like that. So any questions about it? Okay, well we are jumping back into John chapter 8.
And if you think back, it all started with this woman that the Pharisees, scribes, etc., had brought, this adulterous woman before Jesus, uh, you know, hoping that he would condemn her and by that trap him in, in some manner uh, in, in things and whatever. And we know the conversation that took place uh, and all of that. And she left. Uh, but only after all the Pharisees had left. Now, I, I want to say this to you, that, that as we go into this discourse, and most of you that know me, you know that I could spend the next six months or a year just preaching on this one particular discourse. This discourse is rich in theology. Maybe one of the richest places in all of Scripture as far as theological aspects of who God is and who Christ is and who we are in relationship to them. It's always difficult to go through and to, to come up with sermons that are re really going to bring the most out of the, the limited time that we really have for doing these kinds of studies. So just bear with me. Sometimes people think I just kind of nitpick, nitpick things to, to the point of going too long on them and that sort of thing. But again, this, this particular discourse is so rich in theology that, that, that let me tell you something, if we had to give up parts of our Bible, let me tell you, this might be one of the very last places that we would give up. It should be very, very precious to all of us and should be very, very well known to each one of us, uh, this particular discourse. Now, last week we studied the part where Jesus had a conversation with the religious leaders. And what we're going to be doing this morning is picking up in verse 31 and reading on. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never seen, uh, been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. And I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and it has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Why do you make yourself, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I mean, need I say more? Is that not rich? Is that not deep? One of the things I want to bring to your attention is Jesus' audience has changed through this discourse. You know, initially it was this, this discourse that took place between him and those, those officials, those Pharisees, scribes, that had brought the adulterous woman before Jesus, hoping to catch him in a trap. And there was a conversation that took place at the end of which those, those men left one by one. Remember that? But we were told last week as we studied that Jesus was addressing the Pharisees once again in that part of the discourse. So obviously there either were other Pharisees present or when those Pharisees that were there when this woman was brought forth had stayed in the area and were now in the audience listening to what was going on. But we are told early on that, that there were people who heard and believed. If you'll notice, this part of the discourse is addressed to those people. Now, typically what we would find is a lot of people would jump to the conclusion that Jesus is now speaking to people in, the, in, in that group that actually came to saving faith in him. That is not the case. Now certainly some people could fall in that category, but generally speaking, that is not the case at all. These are people who intellectually accepted the things that Jesus was saying. 
but at the same time did not believe him in a salvific way. In other words, most people who are reading the New Testament here, we're reading the Bible, we would see this, what is said here, that they believed. We would jump to the conclusion that it was telling us that these people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But as you go through the dialogue here, it's very clear that they don't fit in that category at all. These are just people that intellectually, in a sense, accepted the things that Jesus was saying, but at the same time, they didn't experience the heart change that accompanies that when you have truly have saving faith. And we see this reflected in the world. There are people out there that have a high regard, in a sense, for the teaching of Jesus. But they do not have saving faith. A very good historical example would be Mahatma Gandhi. He was very much influenced by the teaching of Jesus, but he was not a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I would imagine there's still a good number of people in the world that have that mindset. They have a respectful kind of attitude toward Jesus Christ, but at the same time, they have not received him as the Lord and Savior that he is. So that's the first point we want to make, and that it's possible for people to intellectually accept what Jesus teaches and not have saving faith in him. It happens. We have a tendency as believers, if anybody shows any interest in Jesus at all, then we jump to the conclusion that they're a believer. And that may be the case. But what I'm just saying this morning is it's not always the case. We want to very easily sometimes conclude that people, if they give us anything that even smells like Jesus, then we want to conclude that they are actually believing people. And uh, we just can't always do that. So how do we know? We know because faith in Jesus always brings results. And those results are depicted in a changed life, a changed heart, a changed perspective, a changed emphasis, a change in what we love, a change in what we desire, the change in what we long for. People who actually practice like the, the things that Jesus teaches us, like do unto others as you have them do unto you. People that regularly, not just out of duty, but out of desire, worship corporately on a regular basis with other believers, and I would go further than that. I would say, and also worship very privately, very often on a very regular basis, not just on Sunday mornings. Those who are not only about their own business, but they are also about their father's business. 
those who are also actively, as much as they can, attempting to put the vestige of sin that remains within to death, to be done with it, never to be satisfied with it, never just to simply accept it and say, well, that's just the way things are, so I just got to learn to live with it. Jesus would not have us have that attitude. We live in a world that is really promoting what I would call easy believism. You've heard that phrase before. That is not the gospel of Jesus. It's not the gospel of the Bible. Following Jesus, in some sense, is a very costly thing. It means giving up. Jesus encourages them to minnow in him. Greek word which very often is translated as abide. Abide in Christ. It's not a word that we use very often in the English language. I'm not sure that I hardly ever use the word abide in just a regular conversation with people. It's not one necessarily that we're all that familiar with, but what it means basically is to rest on, to lean on, to live in. People are always looking for good devotional books. There are a lot of them are, that are people are writing today that are available to us. You and I, not, you know, we don't have the, even just the Bible readily available to us in unbelievable ways. But we have lots of writing down through the generations by fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that can certainly be uh, a, a mechanism for learning on our behalf and certainly act as an encouragement to us and that sort of thing. I don't do a lot of reading of the more contemporary stuff. I do, I do, when there's really popular books that are out, I typically read those and that sort of thing. Uh, and I don't do this as much as I used to, but I used to spend a lot of time reading the old classics. Because let me tell you, some of the stuff that was reading, or written from the Reformation forward is just really, really, really good stuff. There was a, a late uh, 18th century theologian pastor by the name of Andrew Murray. He was a pastor in South Africa. And he wrote a devotional book, and the title of it is Abiding in Christ. And if you want some really deep stuff that's going to help you grow as a Christian, I would strongly recommend that you buy that book 
And you read it. You can read it as a, like a daily devotional sort of thing. Helps us to understand what it means to abide in Christ, what it means to live in Christ, to dwell in Christ. Abiding takes time. You can't say that I'm going to abide in Christ and, and, and one second later have some idea that you've actually done it. It is time dependent. It is something that we do over the rest of our life here in the world. It's not one of these instantaneous things. It's something that we learn. It's something that we, we grow in and we learn more about and we live more in as the time goes by. You know, I'm not a favor of the preaching and the teaching of this easy believism that is so rampant today that, uh, that it takes almost nothing at all for someone to come become a believer in Christ. You don't have to give up your, your life. You don't have to change your lifestyle. You don't have to do much of anything. The only thing you have to do at some point in your life is just make a profession of faith. And once you do that, you can have every confidence that when you die and your body goes in the grave, your spirit goes to be with Jesus, and you can be with Jesus for all of eternity. Let me just say this. I meant to say this before, and that is this. You need to understand that these people are hearing the gospel from the very greatest evangelist that ever lived. If anybody could convince anybody, it was Jesus. And the sad thing about it is this, is even though these people were confronted with him, they still did not believe. There may be people in your life that you've been witnessing to for years and years and years and years, and you're ready to give up, and I would say to you, don't do that. Jesus didn't convert every single person that ever heard anything he said. As a matter of fact, what you would find probably is it was only a little mi a minority amongst the masses. Jesus can convert people. You and I can't. He has to do it. So one of the ways that we abide in Christ is we abide in him in regard to discipling other people. Let me tell you something. If you want to grow as a Christian, one of the best ways for you to do that is to work with other people. Find somebody that's new in the faith and help disciple them through that process. You know who's going to benefit from it? They are, but you know who's probably going to benefit more? You. There's nothing that will deepen your relationship with Christ Jesus and sharing what you know with other people. And let me just tell you, if you're sitting there this morning thinking, feeling like you've just kind of stagnated in your faith, I would say to you this. I would ask you the question, well, who are you helping to move along the path of salvation and sanctification? And if you say no one, then I can tell you why you're not growing. Because you're not being faithful to what Christ has called you to do. 
Some people think it's my job to do all this. And, and there's a sense in which, to some degree, it's partly my job. But people are won by Christ more often from the pews than they are from the pulpit. Because when we go to people to tell them what we have to tell them, it tells them a lot of things. And one of those is this person at least must care something about me. They think I'm important enough. They think I'm valuable enough to do this that I know is not easy necessarily for them to do. But only time will tell whether faith professed is real saving faith. That's what it means to remain in Christ, to abide in Christ over time. It shows the genuineness or the falsity of faith that's professed. So are we doing that? Are we abiding? Are we living in Christ? And it's only faith that endures over time that is genuine faith. Faith has to be tested. I don't want to embarrass Chris, but I'm going to do that this morning, maybe. <laughs> Forgive me. He's a brand new believer. He is a male member of the church. The session sat around last week and we had to approve the list of the nominees and we all decided that Chris's name should not be on this nomination form this time. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be on there next time, but the simple fact is this is he's brand new in the faith and his faith has not been sufficiently tested for him to serve the church in that capacity. And this is one of the qualifications you'll, you'll find mentioned in Scripture for officers, and that is that their faith is enduring. It's not something they've just stumbled over and they're fresh in it and all. It's something that they've gone through now for some time, and their faith has been tested, tested, and tested, and it's proven itself to be the real McCoy. R.C. Sproul writes this, he says, Many people mistakenly think that they enter the kingdom of God simply by making a profession of faith. That's a lot of what the thinking that's going on out there today. It's not the profession that gets you into the kingdom, which a lot of people almost like they believe that's what it is. You profess it, that gets you in. It's not the profession that gets you into the kingdom. It's the possession of faith that gets you in. You've heard me speak about the lady on the radio, and let me tell you, it makes me want to rip my hair out every time I hear it. This picture that the only thing you need to do is just right now on the spur of the moment, without even thinking too much about it, and whatever, if you just, you just, you know, if you just feel inclined, just pray to Jesus, you know, and whatever, and you can have every and absolute bit of assurance that you're going to heaven when you die. There is no mention of the cost that you're going to have to weigh before you really give in to this. 
Becoming a Christian is costly in a worldly way. It means giving up a lot of the things that your little heart still likes and maybe even loves. So he said before, to, to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ takes time. Christianity is becoming more and more unpopular in the pervasive culture that has gotten a stranglehold in our land. It's funny how the, the idea that they're promoting is that everybody needs to be accepted, everybody needs to be accepted equally, no matter what color, race, this, that, or the other, everything, sexual orientation, we need to receive everybody, but there's a different rule when it applies to Christians. I mean, they would have to say that everyone is wanted and everyone is welcome unless you happen to be one of those Christians and you're not welcome or wanted. And part of that is because they may have a misunderstanding of the church. And reality is this, is there are people in the church that struggle with all of those things. Sometimes the, the world, I think, has this idea that we believe that we are all the perfect, pure, righteous, always do the right thing people and never do the wrong thing people. And what I would say to you is this, is the world is not going to take us very seriously. until we engage in it in a way that shows them that they're wrong. Never from a high and lofty self-righteous position. You know, it's very easy for Christians to become self-righteous. Matter of fact, I know people that that's the main thing I get from them is they're there's this sense of self-righteousness. What the world needs to see from you and I is our genuine and real brokenness. Not judgments, harsh, what seem to be harsh judgments we make on other people that we don't even know. One of the things we need to remember this morning is something else that Jesus says here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, so he has these Pharisees coming, and they're claimed to being sinless. He, know, he knows them better than they know themselves. I can imagine anyone ever wanting to be a slave. You know, does anyone here want to be a slave? Would you, like, would, would you relish the, eye being, uh, the idea of being enslaved to someone else? It's not something that, that people would, would seek after, not something that anyone wants. But the Bible describes... 
us before Christ as being slaves. Slaves to sin. You see, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, they're claiming that they have never been enslaved to anyone. Which is easy to prove false because, first of all, right as they're speaking, they're enslaved to the Romans. The Romans have conquered them. They can only do what the Romans give them permission to do. There's a sense in which they are enslaved to worldly people at the time. So, what does that say about their honesty? But at the same time, we're talking about people. We're talking about men who are enslaved to sin, who want to claim otherwise. They believe that they've gotten beyond it. They they believe that they are the sinless ones. They believe this, that if you want to be right with God and to be real with God, what you need to do is be like I am. But they were nothing other than self-righteous people. All people are slaves to something. We're either a slave to sin or we're becoming more and more slaves to righteousness. One of the big differences between believers and unbelievers is even though sin is still part of our lives, it's not the central point in our life. It's something that is more on the periphery, and as time goes by, hopefully it moves more and more to the periphery. It becomes less and less central to who we are. As we abide in Christ, and Christ grows in us, and we become more and more like he is over time. And let me just say this. That Jesus, as we become believers, he's put shackles on our sin, but sin is still there. It doesn't have the power over us that it once had. What Jesus does in setting us free is he sets us free from the consequences, the eternal consequences of our sin. That's where the current freedom that we have now abides. Knowing that my sin yesterday, today, and tomorrow is covered. The penalty for it has already been paid by Christ on my behalf. Because you may read this. And come to a wrong conclusion. And that is that some people can come to a sinless point in this world. And we can't understand it like that because that doesn't hold up into the balance of Scripture. Remember that balance of Scripture. Everything you read, everything you study, you need to balance it in what the rest of the, the Scriptures say about a particular thing. And that's where you find the truth. Truth, it's not influenced by your sinful nature, but it is determined exclusively and wholly by God's Word. 
But I want to remind us this morning that even though we are sinners, we still have sin within us, even the very best of us. That, we, that even so, we are saved from the eternal consequences of that sin. That is where our freedom is. The Jews being good, or the Pharisees being good Jews, claim Abraham as their father. He is the connecting point for all Jewish people. He's also important to Muslims. He plays some importance in their theology. But he's also a central figure and character of our Christian faith. These men to claim to, to live like Abraham did. You know, Abraham is their father. He's their figure that stands above everybody else because it was from him that the Jews came forth. They presumed to tell Jesus about Abraham. <laughs> See, these guys, have any of the guys ever seen Abraham? Have any of these guys ever heard Abraham say a word? Have they experienced Abraham in any way other than through his writings? And the answer to that is no, 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 no. But when it comes to Jesus, Jesus actually knows the guy personally and privately. And they're trying to speak up to him in regard to Abraham. See, Abraham has died. And Abraham's spirit has been received into heaven. And guess who was there to welcome him? The very son of God. See, Jesus knows Abraham personally. These men do not. And they claim to be the ones who speak on his behalf. And in essence, Jesus is saying that you may think you know him, but you don't know diddly. They have the idea that people enter into the kingdom of God just simply because of their lineage. Because they are distantly related to Abraham. That is what makes them welcome. That is what makes them acceptable into God's kingdom. But we understand that that is false. That Abraham has never ever saved anybody. Not even Abraham. That Abraham is in heaven right now with Jesus for one reason, and that's because Jesus died for Abraham to cover his sins just like he did for us. Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So they said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
Abraham a few thousand years prior. Jesus, eternity prior. Sometimes you wonder if this is not a very good measure of just how close people can come and not make it and fall short. Not just fall short, be so very far away from where they ought to be and need to be. One of the most hurtful things I would imagine or most outrageous things that these Pharisees heard Jesus say from his mouth. He talks about where they claim that God's their father, but you know who your real father is. It doesn't come right out and say it, but he implies it, and that is your father is Satan, and you're doing his bidding. You're doing his will. The whole time you're thinking and you're claiming to be doing the will of God, you're doing the will of your true father who is the evil one. You wonder if what Jesus was teaching here didn't just kind of pass right over their head. Certainly it's passed over their heart. Jesus didn't hold any punches. Well, maybe a few. And he said the hard things that needed to be said. He said the hard things that people needed to hear. He told them what they desperately needed to know. We are reformed here, and we do not apologize for it. I can remember years ago, you know, a pastor that I, that I knew and I, and I loved and I still love, and he's, he's way away from me theologically. He's almost on the other end of the spectrum said one time, weren't all Protestants at one time reformed? And what I wanted to say is, yes, 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 why are you not? How can you be true to the Bible and believe what you believe as, in, as regard to the plan of salvation? You think I'm arrogant. Because I think God has chosen and elected people to salvation. 
Don't you think it's a little bit more arrogant for you to believe that you believe it when other people don't? When it was all completely and totally up to you. No help from God, no help from the Holy Spirit. You just totally chose and did it on your own. That sounds to me to be very arrogant and prideful. Not the other way around. Very often people misunderstand our approach to things, and that is this is we understand that grace is a precious gift. It's an unbelievable gift, and we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it at all. That's what grace is, is favor that's given, that is not merited, that is not earned, that is not deserved in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't make people who understand it prideful. It makes them grateful. And amazed. That's why we call it amazing grace. And the most amazing thing for you and the most amazing thing for me is that me, myself, and I have been granted salvation by a God that loves me like I can't even begin to imagine what love is. For Christ, who has come and done all of this. He was there that day for Chris. He was there that day for Debbie and for, for Ken and Karen. He was speaking with you in mind. You have been in his heart, in his mind, from the very beginning of time. That is enduring love. Just remember this. When you read these dialogues and things, just remember that Jesus was there for you. Jesus said what he said for you. You were part of that picture even though you lived thousands of years later. It's not that you were something that was just added later. You've been part of the picture from the very, very beginning of this whole thing. How precious did that grace appear, the hour of his belief.